So welcome back. Let's begin our afternoon session with uh, one of the mantras. Just to help bring us back into focus on our practice. This third one is a refuge chant, Buddhang Dhammang Sangang One Day. One day is uh, I honor, or I, I bow, I revere the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. This, these uh, three timeless principles, Buddha aligning as we chant with present moment awareness. Buddhi, this awareness has this quality of knowing and knowingness, not so much academic or knowing about things through our conceptual mind, or that's one dimension of knowing, but direct knowing, awareness touching what unfolds as phenomena. So aligning with this knowing here and now, this ground of being, it's been talked about this morning, and knowing what? Knowing the Dharma, knowing the Dharma of what's unfolding in each moment, the Dharma of our breath, the Dharma of digesting our lunch, (laughs) maybe the Dharma of feeling a bit sleepy, (laughs) the Dharma of different moods that might generate maybe a bit of loss of energy, maybe wondering what's going to happen, maybe some practice this morning has allowed us to get in touch with a residue of what we're not often conscious of. Sometimes that can happen as we start to slow down, maybe feeling tones that are not so comfortable or not, haven't been conscious, become more conscious. Maybe we realize we're a bit exhausted or maybe we feel a bit upset, or maybe a bit restless, or maybe we feel content. So the Dharma, this is all within the Dharma, the sounds, the feelings, the phenomena, and the knowing contemplates the Dharma, contemplates the Dharma as both arising and passing, and also knows intimately, so receives what is known in the way that can actually, in that receptivity, be compassionate. It's not compassionate to something, but the very act of receptivity to what is known is a mudra or inner gesture of compassion. So knowing the Dharma and then Sangha to practice with what is knowing. Sangha, we're doing this together, but even if there's not a group, then the Sangha can, uh, you know, inwardly and more directly, is this intentionality and focus to not just be a leaf in the wind, regards whatever's happening, just go with this mood, that mood, but to actually contemplate and practice. Is this wholesome? Is it not? Discerning, investigating, exploring, keep looking into the nature of reality. This is the practice of the Sangha. So as we begin our afternoon session, we're aligning with these principles, rather than so much aligning with our moods and our worries and our fears and our anxieties and our hopes, projections, we align with directly knowing what's here and contemplating that 
to um, begin our afternoon by picking up on uh, some of the themes that Kitty Sara touched into in his really, really beautiful talk, Kitty Sara. Thank you. <laughs> you got us back on the right track. Um, and to maybe embellish and explore um, some of this territory a bit further in its application for the times we're in and some of the areas um, of contemplation that uh, need to be looked at for us in our evolutionary journey as a human consciousness or some kind of consciousness that's moving through us uh, in this human form, these human forms. And 
in essence, it is a journey into this non-differentiated awareness that was pointed to very directly and very immediately. The place where the Buddha realized on the night of his awakening, which he called Nibbana, or the peaceful, or the deathless, or the unchanging, the undying, the island, the secure, the beautiful, the eternal, and so on, these metaphors, which is inherent uh, for all beings. We turn to that, recognize that, which is here and now, timeless, not dependent on how we view ourselves as personalities, whether we think we're worthy or not, or we've practiced enough or not. I mean, there are many different incidences in the time of the Buddha when people came up to him and realized very immediately the taste of peace, the taste deep, deep peace, without necessarily being a disciple or having practiced for ages, because it is ultimately the most natural state for each of us. And we just turn to that and recognize. But we get confused and lost and disorientated and dislocated, not only personally, but historically. There's a lot that dislocates us and uproots us from the most natural state of our being. And that is really the place of practice. If we didn't have that dislocation and all the suffering that goes with it and the struggle that goes with it, we we probably wouldn't have much of a practice. (laughs) So ironically, perhaps there wouldn't even be a Buddha's teaching. (laughs) So it's said, the masters say, like, actually it is because of our struggle that the Dharma arises. And it is because, as Ajahn Chah said, because of the experience we have of desire and aversion, that we have a practice. So you'd also say don't be too much in a hurry to try and get rid of all the hindrances and obstacles because it's actually our sharpening stone for our deepening of insight and wisdom and really more profoundly and most important, compassion. So the journey into a non-differentiation, which is a word I can hardly say, but anyhow journey into this peace (laughs) is not um, in spite of the differentiated. It's not as a, it's not a dismissal or pushing away. In other words, it's not a bypass because that's often how it has been perhaps understood or even taught or even internalized, uh, particularly in our uh, contemporary Buddhist circles that there is a sort of hierarchy of what is valued and what is dismissed. And what is valued is, is this sort of internalized idealization, actually not necessarily the real realization, but an idealization of, of this uh, undying, timeless element. And then everything else is seen as lesser than that or dismissed or not that important and actually can be um, we can use <clears throat> this uh, un, you know, realization of the unbounded, or as the Buddha said, the place where all distinctions merge, to sort of have a bit of a laziness to actually bother to look at actually the place of distinction and to contemplate that with care and understanding and inquiry. 
So, so we don't want to actually use the ground of the teaching of the most subtle insight as a bypass or as a justification for our unwillingness to really explore what is the application of this within the world or to default on the journey of deep compassion. So Kuan Yin is the one that listens very deeply to the nature of all beings regardless and crosses, as said in the Chinese school, crosses them over the sea of suffering, crosses all the beings that we listen into, our own beings and the beings around us, crossing over suffering. So the journey, in a way, is not just to realize uh, nibbana, realize the deathless, and to have that realization more and more unshakable, but it's also to respond to the conditions of the, of the world. And this is what is the ideal of the Buddha, of a bodhisattva, is one that knows the ground of emptiness but is also able to respond fully to the, the forms and the conditions that arise from that emptiness and dissolve back into that emptiness. So rather than seeing the ground of being as a bypass, it can become the ground for our contemplation of our conditioning and for looking at the differentiated. And for this, uh, the there's an important piece, and maybe core piece of the teaching that's really helpful for us to consider. And this piece of the teaching arose on the night of the Buddha's awakening. It's called his third knowledge, the third knowledge of his, on the, on what was his awakening? I mean, that is important to look at. What was the awakening of the Buddha? It said on the night of his awakening, three knowledges arose, and these knowledges were liberating. So what were those knowledges, and what do they mean for us? So the first one was about insight into all the many lives. This is how it's recorded in the text. In the classical text, all the many lives, lifetimes he had lived through, all the different forms, the different foods, the different relationships uh, that he had lived through. And for some, this might not be a meaningful metaphor. For others, it may be. But you could look at it, if you like, either in a very, that very literal way. I don't have a problem looking at it like that myself. But uh, you can also look at it through all the different stories. If you looked at your life, how many stories have you lived through? <laughs> have we lived through? So many different shapes and forms and dramas and stories. And at the center of all of those stories and all of those dramas is this little mark of I. <laughs> if, you, if you notice, it always sort of oscillates around the me and what I feel and what I'm going through. So he saw all of that and saw that all of that, all of those stories, all of those lives, all of that endlessness of what he calls sangsara was generated by this mark of I. And he saw the second knowledge that it wasn't only relevant to himself, but all beings, that all beings go through these many, many different shapes and forms according to this momentum, what he called karma, momentum of the mind's intentionality. 
it generates literally the forms and the shapes that we can't become accustomed to and we call ourself. So when he looked at all of that and saw different beings arising and passing according to this momentum shaped around the eye, he felt, you know, this is a great endless weary, weariness. You know, so this is a culmination of a long journey. And then through the third knowledge that he had on the night of his awakening, which was actually the shattering of the eye, really, or the, the deconstruction of the house of self, he actually saw that the core issue wasn't so much trying to perfect, get perfection within the shapes and the forms of the self, but actually to undo the, the agency through which this generation of the stories and the endless seeking and the desire through which that operates. Which so in this insight, he said, seeking but not finding the house builder, I traveled through the round of countless birth. Oh, painful is birth ever and again. House builder, you have now been seen. You shall not build the house again. Your rafters have been broken down. Your rich pole is demolished too. My mind has now attained the unformed nibbana and reached the end of every kind of craving. To reach the end of every kind of craving, the craving that is that we're consuming this planet with, what is it to reach the end of that craving? And how can we bring that about? So we explored that this morning, that there is a way, this collapse of the eye, and that in that process there was a great sense of liberation, a great peace, a great freedom, and a great upwelling of, of energy and power and agency not any more dependent on the conditions of life for freedom, but able to realize freedom independent. So from that perspective, Buddha contemplated what's called the co-arising of conditioning, just seeing how things come to be. And this is the, one of the also knowledges of the Buddha and the knowledges that arise in our contemplation of the Dharma to, to actually be willing not only to rest in the unconditioned and the peaceful and the place, non-place, if you like, of pure awareness, but also to be interested in the process of conditionings. What gives rise to what? And then how can we set in motion conditionings or intentionalities that undermine and deconstruct conditioning that leads to suffering? conditioning that leads to this extreme separative consciousness and divisiveness, divisiveness that is generating so much suffering and violence and war. But to explore that in its depth is a, is a subtle journey and a journey that invites us into looking at our own conditioning and to look at how our own conditioning sometimes is unconsciously used in the furtherancing, furthering of this projection of the mind out onto others in ways that separate out others and diminishes the so-called other. 
through race or class or gender or through because of geography or just generally through a cultural or social conditioning that hasn't really been explored and how that can operate internally in a very unconscious way. So the very heart, we're looking at the mind. It's called the jitta. The mind, when we realize, we talk about realizing Nibbana, one great Thai master, Ajahn Mahabua, talked about the realization of the pure jitta, pure awareness as Nibbana. There's no difference. There's a taste of the peace and the freedom and the lack of boundary, the unlimited nature of mind. But then this same jitta, that's the, you could call that the ground, it's just an analogy, the ground of the jitta is like the depth of the ocean, it's unformed, it's undifferentiated, has no particular quality. Maybe sometimes it's called pabasara or radiance. And yet this jitta becomes layered it becomes covered, this pristine, diamond-like nature of the mind becomes covered through the conditionings that we receive from our schooling, from our family, from our culture, or maybe just from the momentum of our own unique karma. There's a certain shaping so that those, this jitter becomes shaped and colored and conditioned by a patterning or programmings that we receive through our lifetime. And it's this that we can explore. When there's no space from which to explore, we just become those conditionings. We can't reflect on them, we can't see them, we can't see how they operate, we just are, we just are them. And that can be very painful. So when we start to go into, get sort of like you see happening, it's happening now, say in this country, when there is a tremendous um, sort of deep level of discontent that is being channeled and funneled into through um, political um, agitation into demonizing the other to shore up the ground of what is felt as being lost. You know, America, the, the, the empire... <laughs> It's, it's wobbling. <laughs> and, so, and the heart of that empire has been the dominance, say, of a, a white, um, male, patriarchal, dominating world power, which, has, which, is, uh, which is not really um, able to maintain that power. And so there's, demographically, there's a change. In the world power dynamics, there's a change. Um, in the world around us, it's gotten so much more complicated, so much more uncertain, so much more volatile. And all of that, it's hard to, um, so much more undermining of security and economic stability over the last decade or so through various policies that have gone on that have deepened division, deepened poverty, deepened a sort of feudalism and a denigration that all of this has led to a lot of discontent and hatred and fear and is can so easily, so dangerous when that starts to be channeled through these conditionings that are unexplored. 
because when we don't explore our conditioning, when we don't really look at how that can become a conduit for our unresolved fears and uncertainties, then that can so easily, all of that hatred and fears we're seeing can be projected onto this, the other, you know, which is a very dangerous thing. We've seen that happen historically already. We've been through that story in the 20th century. One would hope by now we would learn, have learned <laughs> some very important lessons. Uh, but it seems that we're having to flirt with the edge of that again um, to really see have we evolved, have we woken up to this othering and the projection of that comes really all from this mind. All of this comes from this unconscious, unexamined conditioning of the mind, conditioning that we get as a certain race, as a certain culture, as a certain gender, and so on, much of which is just taught and handed down and is unexamined. So I remember growing up when I was uh, in, in a, I grew up in an Anglo-Irish family, which meant half of my family had come over from Ireland for work um, after the war, around the war, post the war. Um, they lived in a certain part of London, um, west end of Lon- west of London, and it was a an area where there's a lot of immigrant families coming into, not only Irish but others. And I remember we would go on uh, Sunday lunch, sometimes to my grandmother's house. And across the road, there was a a new family had moved in, I think from the West Indies. And there was this sort of um, discontent about that. These were the other. For a while, the Irish were the other, but then these were now the other, (laughs) the convenient other. And I don't know, because I was very, very young, so I don't remember... The, um, the, the narratives that were going on, but clearly at some stage I picked up that there's something to fear about this other. The people that weren't white, people that had come from a strange country, people that, were, that had many more bottles of milk outside their door than we did, which meant there were lots of them. And one of the very earliest dreams that I remember, nightmares that I remember when I was very, very young, was being caught in this house of the other and being chased and not being able to get out of this house. And I remember waking up screaming at the top of my lungs. And when I think back to that dream and to, you know, from an adult point of view, I think, well, there must have been a real feeling of fear. Somehow I imbibed this feeling of fear. And that's so that these conditionings, when they happen sometimes very young or around gender, Growing up with brothers, there were definitely messages that came about that that's not what girls do, so no, you can't go and do that. And I, so I remember feeling very confused, but actually it wasn't said, it's because you're a girl, it was said because the weather's not good, <laughs> or something else. So you get this very confused message, you know, something's wrong, and something's wrong with me, but I'm not sure what it is. So there's some confusion and some expectation, it's not very clear, or around class, you know, growing up in a in the deep working class, and there were things that you 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 aren't the sort of person that goes to universities, or you don't do this, or you don't study that. But it wasn't very explicit; it was implicit. 
So one learns these things implicitly, um, and they have a great emotional component to them. They're not explicit. They're not um, spelled out to you until you figure it out. But these are racial, gender, social, class conditionings, which shape the sense of self. And none of all of this is, on some level, erroneous in terms of how then one projects the jitta as an as a is a projective the mind projects so it projects so it projects inwardly generating from conditionings from narrative from moments of perception and memory from um, feeling tone it projects in and creates and generates this sense of a self that is patterned programmed and it projects outwardly from that patterning and makes assumptions about the others around according to what is conditioned if we're not very reflective. For example, we might, you know, we might one day get into bed and we pull back our bed sheets and we see a spider. And we go, oh, a spider, and we scream. There's something we don't like. And we have all this reactivity around this little creature and then if we understand what's really going on it's not about the spider at all it's really about the mind's projected and then reacted to its own projections its own fears so it's caught in a fear syndrome that's completely nothing to do with the other but it's to do with the mind itself or maybe the opposite we see someone or we see something we like and then the mind projects i want and then it's, it's caught in a sort of fever of wanting, of lust, whatever, and then we might get that thing, and then we realize it's so flimsy, we don't really want it. Or we lose interest after a second. So what's really happening there? Is it the thing? Is it the, is it the, the, the creature we've seen? Is it the other person? Or is it just the mind projecting and reacting to its own projections? So the mind projects according to these patternings, these programs. So another way one could look at this, it's like you could think the mind is like a, like a, a hard drive in the computer, blank hard drive, a jitta, unformed jitta mind. It has you know, it's no content. And then these programs get downloaded and they start operating. And they operate the sense of self. So the ground, when we talk about the ground of the unconditioned, the place of freedom, it's not freedom in spite of the conditionings or to push away the conditionings, but it's the ground from which we can explore how have we been conditioned, both personally and collectively. And this is a really important and profound investigation. And it's not outside of the work of the Dharma. So what happens when we start to withdraw our projections? What happens when we start to withdraw the projection from the self or from the other, the subject and the object, describing self and other in a particular way and then getting caught in some kind of dynamic like, dislike, complexity? What happens when when, when we do that, which is the work of meditation, or one aspect of the work of meditation. 
what happens when we start to even question our assumptions. This is a a really interesting area to explore because an aspect of the mind will go out, say for example, I'm walking in a beautiful forest and there's a part of the mind called the manovinyana, the consciousness that objectifies. It goes out and we look at a tree and the mind will go tree. And then you think you're seeing a tree. you've got a name for it you know or we say you know a friend person or even we say ourself we think we know ourself we think we know that person we think we know the tree because we have a name so as a part of the, the mind that objectifies through language it goes out it has a name it places and it differentiates it says I am not that that is different than me that is separate from me. So we have the idea of a me in here, this me that's somewhere in here. <laughs> I'm not quite sure where it is, but it's definitely in there. And then there's a you out there, and I have a name for you, and maybe I have some, not only a name, but I, but I even have some ideas about you. Uh, you might have some ideas about me, and that somehow we've assumed you know, what someone said or what we've dreamt up. And we get really stuck in that, stuck in that that kind of construct of the mind. And we think we know something. So what happens when, this is the art of meditation, what happens if we don't actually, we might say tree, but what happens if we withdraw that projection through the naming and the languaging and the differentiation and just bring awareness to what's present now? and just receive and feel with. So this we can actually explore. And in that, you know, that feeling with, being with, is it, we start to enter a different way of knowing, a different way of being in relationship, a radically different way of being in relationship. If we look at very ancient cultures, they had a way of being in relationship with the world. This is uh, to read from someone called Richard Tarnas, his book Cosmos and Psyche, that was connected with what he calls a primordial participatory consciousness. It means like the consciousness isn't moving into this separative way of knowing, this divisive way of knowing. You, you are here and I am there and we're very different and we know where we are and there's these huge boundaries and we're not really the same. And all of that is true on one level and the trees are tree and the earth is the earth and they're objects to me. Therefore, they're distant from me. I don't feel with them. They perhaps don't mean anything to me. I don't have any responsibility to them. I don't have any relationship. There may be even coal. We can even view them very mechanically, rationally, or perhaps even in a cool and distant way. But there were earlier cultures, many of them, that were more shamanic, if you like, in all cultures, all continents, Aboriginal cultures, First Nation cultures, Celtic cultures, African cultures, pre-rational Western scientific 
modality cultures where there were very different ways of knowing, knowing, not just knowing through this one tone, this one view of the, of the mind thinking about. This is what um, Richard Tarnas says, the primal human being perceives the surrounding natural world as permeated with meaning, meaning whose significance is at once human and cosmic. Spirits are seen in the forest, presences are felt in the wind and the ocean, the river and mountain. The primal world is ensouled, it is pregnant with signs and symbols, implications and intentions. A continuity extends from the interior world of the human to the world outside. The human being is a microcosm within the macrocosm of the world, participating in its interior reality and united with the whole in ways that are both tangible and invisible. The human psyche is embedded within a world psyche. Within this relatively undifferentiated state of consciousness, human beings perceive themselves as directly, emotionally, mystically, and consequentially participating in and communicating with the interior life of the natural world and cosmos. This is basically talking about a way of knowing and a way of being that might call, for want of a better word, and not a very Buddhist word, that's deeply ensouled within the web of life. It's deeply feeling with and receptive to a participatory relationship with the natural world, with other beings, with the cosmos, with the unseen, with subtle realms that can be known not just through the rational, but can be known through the intuitive, through the psychic, through extra perceptory awareness, through meditative receptivity, all of which are through dreams, through visions, through revelation, all of which are other ways of knowing. There are many other ways of knowing. And why is it important to actually even acknowledge that there are other ways of knowing? If we don't know the ancient mythological influences that have formed our way of being, we cannot develop the insight that we need to have to change our beliefs and modify our behavior nor can we recount with a reconnect sorry nor can we reconnect with a living yet silenced dimension of our psyche that has for far too long been denied access to our conscious mind this kind of knowing by the way is is being realized through the work of um, quantum physicists and so on in the looking, exploring the nature of consciousness. So it's not, it's not outside the realms of science. Perhaps it's the new um, direction of science to look into subjective consciousness. When we come to the practice of mindfulness and insight, which is, opens the door to these ways of knowing, we bring, we train this mind that's going out all the time and naming and differentiating and creating a, another through the projective capacity of the mind, operating through our conditioning, which is propelled by sometimes by these deep, unconscious, emotional uh, feeling tones, 
or projects inwardly, creating the sense of self. We bring this quality of just pure attention to the present moment, to the body, to the feeling tone, to the mind. So this way of turning the mind's energy from its projective nature back into itself. Who is the subject? Who's the one listening? As we do this, we can uh, begin to um, to realize something very important that we miss all the time, which is what uh, Kitty Sara was pointing to this morning, which is that actually through in the heart of all of these um, projections and stories of the self and the mind and the other, and the differentiations, even the sense of time, the sense of getting somewhere, the sense of having been somewhere, all of those sort of real but unreal constructs of the mind start to dissolve. They start to not have primacy. They start to not shape our consciousness. And instead, what we start to realize is what's more real is this indwelling presence, profound presence. It's here now, was here this morning, will be here when we go home, and is more real than what we call the real. What we call the real, what we think and what we see and what we imagine. But what helps illuminate that is this faculty of awareness itself. So this mindfulness practice, we start to take the journey back home, bringing moments of attention here, now, to the quality of being present, resting back into the awareness of the heart. And it's here that we can not only learn to liberate ourselves from false assumptions, but to liberate each other. And then perhaps we might have a chance of really meeting, really meeting this world, really allowing the heart to just be naked, unconditioned, undefended, unconstructed, unstrategized, just to be open and present to the mystery of the unfolding of consciousness, And that's why in the Heart Sutra it's said that such a journey is a journey to leap beyond the walls of the mind, to leave dream thinking far behind, and to arrive into the mysterious way of the heart. Okay, so let's just stretch for a moment, then we can do a little bit of meditation. So it's very interesting when we come to look at the self, 
a sense of self. Because we'll notice we have quite a few of them, not only one. <laughs> and sometimes they get into arguments with each other. <laughs> Which one's going to dominate today? <laughs> but to actually feel into these different selves because all of them really have been uh, conditioned. And so there are different voices. Some of them are from very early, you know, very sort of I-can't-cope ones. (laughs) Or that sort of nebulous feeling of what the hell's going on. which is probably the truest one, actually. (laughs) I have no idea what's going on. (laughs) And then we have all these adult ones on top of that going, I do know what's going on, and I'm in control. (laughs) And then occasionally that one slips into, I don't know what's going on. (laughs) And it freaks out. (laughs) Yeah, so we have uh, one that rescues, we have one that... uh, the rebel, we have one that uh, feels in control, that one that's uh, collapsed maybe, one that's, uh, you know, we have just so many shapes of the self. It's so malleable. Talk about shape-shifting. Don't have to worry about shape-shifting into other forms. <laughs> we have enough going on just in this sense of self. But if we can actually, rather than being so, when we look at the very core of this teaching when the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment that enlightenment gave rise to the teaching called the 12 links of dependent origination which is at the heart of this construction of self you see this very first link so avidya pachya sankara which means avidya which not really knowing not knowing the state of ignorance implied not knowing our true nature this ground of formless awareness there arises this pachya sankara, this volitional movement. We move towards something. It's very primary, it's very ancient. We move towards finding a home. We move towards landing. Um, Almost like that movement when there's conception and implantation in the womb wall. It's almost like that early but we're constantly moving to a shape, a form, a structure of self. And this, this avidya pachya sankara means the patterning, the shape. We move to find the awareness gets shaped into one of these constructs of self. So let's just take, let's just sort of take our attention in, not to, you know, go into some special space somewhere else, but just to feel maybe what shapes of self, how they're present for us now. How do we feel? Maybe the texture, the feeling tone, narrative, around who we feel we are. And if you really pay attention, can you actually find a self? (laughs) It's almost like the self operates when we don't pay attention. (laughs) So it leaps up and takes over. (laughs) 
<laughs> you really pay attention. What do you find? Who are you? So let's just sit for a while using the breath and the practices we know just to explore who are you? If you want, you can just scan parts of your life, different roles, different jobs, different periods of your life, different relationships, and just sort of feel into the shapes of self that you took in those situations. So uh, we're going to take this into an exercise in a bit, so to really uh, see if you can, uh, we're going to explore this with each other, to see what you'd like to maybe bring to that exercise, exploring different shapes of yourself and talk about and what that, that is. You might be able to see how the conditions that you were in contributed to the shape that you took. Maybe it didn't feel very comfortable, but was necessary for whatever reason. And you see this co-dependent arising, conditionality. So can explore which which self feels more you, which is true, which is the most real, what feels redundant or unnecessary. These kinds of questions in self-inquiry, exploring these shapes, these roles, feeling tone, mind state, narrative energy in the body, how it's felt. It's all mindful of the body. How does that feel? Which pieces are you most invested in? don't want to let slip or what part do, do we feel most vulnerable where do we feel most vulnerable in sense of self and so these different personas that we have shapes of the self roles How heavy are they? What is it uh, 
to let go. It's impossible. You have to soften out of out of them. What would that mean? Another aspect of this question is what is expected of you from outside, from family, society, work, in terms of the personas we present, or what is assumed, projected onto your body, onto yourself. This is uh, just a way of inquiring. It's called Dhamma Vijaya, inquiring into our reality, our experience. So what I would like to suggest is that we find someone uh, to work with. And we're going to explore this territory. If you uh, feel a bit vulnerable, or then maybe choose someone that you feel a friend, otherwise just someone near you. Um, but just to explore this question, who are you, in terms of what kinds of the questions I was asking? What uh, kind of personas do we carry? <laughs> what do we present? What's projected on us? What does that feel like? What situations are we in that, or that we've been in in our life that pull out different kinds of personas and roles? Um, and, you know, can we feel into that. So when we're exploring this, you can take turns. Maybe one person speak for five or ten minutes and then the other person speak. Um, So that there's going to be a number of things going in in this inquiry. It's not just a chat. It's really to try and really bring some awareness and meditative process. So really explore if you're speaking and you're speaking about, you know, one some kind of persona. Like when I was practicing for myself, I was feeling into the sense of me in the work that I do in in South Africa, which has been going on for a long time, 22 years, and um, the shape and the energy of the self. And, you know, it's uh, it's particular feeling tones in that. Um, A a sort of a rescuer type energy, (laughs) which is um, some of that a bit unconscious just gets pulled up and it's very um, exhausting in a certain way and that was that was just a little taste and that was quite insightful for me actually just in that last 15 minutes because there are other pieces that come out but I hadn't felt that somewhere in the energy body see the body holds everything at some level it's an energy, it's felt in the body it has feeling, tone, emotion, a certain shape um, or maybe one's in a, a role of um, a partner or a parent or in one's work and there's a certain shape and feeling tone. What is that? What is it like? And sometimes when we feel it, it's like, what would it be like to let that go? And when I thought about that, say, in the particular mode in certain situations of trying to help something survive and promoting things, what would it be like to let that go? And it sort of, you know, maybe feels vulnerable. 
maybe fearing collapse, maybe, you know, so all of that is interesting to explore when we look at what personas, what sense of self is, in, as, it, as we are conditioning our own sense of self in relationship to what's going on alongside very deep conditionings, like again, you know, going back to South Africa as a white person, there's, there's a lot of complexity in the conditioning there that happens. Um, some of it's unconscious racially, some of it's, um, most of, a lot of it's unconscious. You just get conditioned into these roles. You meditate, you start to see some of that and try and move out of it, but the structures, um, the atmosphere, I mean, one thing I can say about apartheid, it was very successful in that it really split people racially and it, gener- and it continued to generate, continues to generate dissonance and a conditioning that gets reaffirmed over and over again and almost with every meeting. And you don't even realize you're conditioned um, actually because it becomes the norm. It's actually not normal, but what's not normal when it becomes a norm gets very distorting for us all. And all our cultures are like that to some degree. We're in these systems that normalize abnormal behavior and abnormal conditionings. So the journey back to reclaim, when we talk about reclamation of the sacred, reclamation of the hearts, reclamation of pure sanity, you know, our own essential being, it's a huge, simple, because it's one shift, you know, like Kittisara inducted us into a very simple way into that. But it's also huge, because we're going, you know, we're looking at systemic conditioning and looking at what that journey involves. And I remember there was a moment... You know, I didn't, wasn't brought up in South Africa, so, I mean, I was brought up in another kind of crazy system, which was a class system in Britain. But um, so I didn't go to South Africa until I was about 36 to work there in the Dharma. And when I first went there, I just thought, this is a mad place <laughs> that's become normalized as normal. Um, but I remember the day when I realized I was starting to be conditioned into this madness and I'd gone into, because in the deep rural area where we live and work, every person, African person, person of color, was in a laboring position, pretty much, and every white person was in a more entitled and wealthy position. And as much as we try to, you know, work against some of that, and work in relationships that were different than what were expected, which was alienating for us but within the white community, or marginalizing or complex. One day I went into a supermarket, and um, this old, elderly, very elderly Zulu man was just, there was this big line of um, pile of baskets, and he was just lifting out this basket and pulled it out just as I walked past and I took it and I said, thank you very much. And I looked at him and he looked at me and I thought, fuck, I can't believe that. Because I, I was just like in my unconscious mode going shopping and I assumed that he was a worker pulling out his basket for the white madam. And I realized, of course, he's pulling it out for himself. And it was, it was a very um, shaming moment for me and, and obviously probably something he was very used to himself for him but it was also a very enlightening moment so I had a lot of guilt and shame and sort of crawled around the supermarket and went home and knocked my head against a brick wall 
and so on. But it was actually like, this is conditioning. You know, if I'd come into that society as, you know, when I first came in, I wouldn't have even occurred to me that there was that relationship. And so these things start to get conditioned into us before we even know it's happening. It takes a lot of awareness to see how the voices and the, the assumptions, you know, happen. Gender, racial, uh, geographies, and how this othering can happen so quickly. So, so that's just a little bit of showing of my journey around conditioning. So we can explore these conditionings. We can explore these shapes, shapes of self. And you know, the important thing is that we can know we can move out of them. We can liberate them. We can cross them over the sea of suffering um, for ourselves and for each other. So I encourage you to to find someone to work with, and as you're working, you know, like just to explore who are you, what conditionings have you experienced, how does that shape as a sense of self, allowing your reporting to the person you're working with to really come out of a the place of awareness, place of mindfulness, and to feel maybe as you're exploring that, what does it feel in the body if you can. What is the narratives? What is the emotional experience with some of that? To the extent you feel comfortable, you might see a lot of that and choose not to say the whole package, you know, because um, it might be a bit embarrassing or whatever, and that's fine, but to the extent you feel comfortable to share. But the important thing is that we see it for ourselves, because in the seeing is the dissolving. When the Buddha was enlightened on that night, he collapsed the house of self. It was through seeing the insight into the construct, the false construct, the jitta, the heart have been sort of constricted in this shape. And through the seeing, he shattered that ridge pole, that eye, never to reappear again. Tremendous sort of atomic shift, quantum shift, implosion, liberating huge energy, to turn the wheel of the Dharma to this point in time here in New York Insight, from that one insight. Okay, so find a mate. So the structure is take about 10 minutes. Shogu will find a useful exercise. Something to explore. You know, you just get a, an idea of this territory to explore it. Um, as who's in the driving seat. When we were in our monastic training, our teacher used to say, make sure the Buddha's in the driving seat. Because <laughs> any old self could get in that driving seat and drive you off a cliff, you know. So <laughs> you want to check out who's got on your, who's taking the wheel when you get up in the morning, <laughs> taking you into the day. Um, so let's take a, a 10 minute uh, silent break. So you have a a bathroom break, drink break, and then we'll just go into our last session. We'll sit for a little bit and have last discussion and then sharing of the blessings. So we just spent some time meeting different parts of ourselves a little more consciously uh, than sometimes we usually do, or seeing and feeling different parts of ourselves. 
maybe some of that is uh, still with us. So as was mentioned by us, some of you, as we checked in, was what is uh, important is that we meet these conditionings with inquiry, with discernment, but also with a lot of compassion. These different parts of ourselves are like living beings. Some of them struggle, some of them are wounded, some of them aren't so nice. Some are beautiful. So there's many different aspects of the shapes that we take in relationship to what is needed or out of habit. So as we breathe in, allowing the breath and the awareness to just Fuse through the body with a feeling of great softness, kindness, mercy. Gentleness, understanding. As we breathe out, just being able to release some of the holding and identity that can sometimes become so constricting. Breathing in, feeling some of that space, replacing the shapes of the self with some space, with some awareness, free space, mindful awareness. Where we don't have to know and have it all figured out, but are still have this quality of knowing, presence. that knows all the shapes but isn't any of them, ultimately. Kind, compassionate, ancient, fresh, aware, wise, listening, knowing. So the teacher encouraged us just to allow this knowing, the knowing one, the aware, present one, it's open, connected to what is through the contemplative mindful process of inquiry to be in the driving seat. It's very simple, showing up and trusting The heart itself, the aware present heart, is enough. 
So let's just finish with a sharing of uh, blessings from our day's practice. So just appreciating taking the time to gather together to bring our attention to these really uh, profound and important investigations of who we are and true abiding and compassionate response for ourselves, for others. And as we're aware of this, being aware that we are within a community, a city, a world, a country, continents, a planet. And in that awareness, knowing that there's a deep interconnection into being with the totality. And so may we share so blessing, punya, good energy, prayerfulness. Allow that to generate out into the world around us with the wish, the intentionality. May there be compassion, wisdom, healing, peace, and freedom from suffering ourselves, our families, our communities, within this country, this continent, across the great oceans, all continents, all beings, Mother Earth. Finishing with the mantra, heart mantra of Kuan Yin of the Giteshvara, great Bodhisattva of mercy and compassion, allowing that intention to carry through the sounding of this holy mantra.
Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, go well. Have a lovely evening. And if you would like a copy of my book and you're a bit financially um, strapped, then please offer what you can and um, take a copy. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.